Uh, good evening. Um, I'd like to welcome you to uh, this evening's event, which is uh, a talk and book launch for my dear colleague, uh, Fawaz Jerges, who, as you know, is Professor of International Relations uh, here at the LSE and the author of this new book, Making the Arab World, Nasser, Qutb, and the Clash that Shaped uh, the Middle East. Um, as I said, Fawaz is a treasured colleague, but he also has a, a very bad habit of uh, writing and publishing uh, brilliant books in a kind of relentless pace that is kind of uh, embarrassing to the rest of us. Uh, so in 2005, for example, just in recent memory, uh, he published The Far Enemy, Why Jihad Went Global, which I think remains the, the single best book on al-Qaeda uh, in terms of its emergence. And then he expanded his analysis in 2011 in uh, The Rise and Fall of Al-Qaeda. In 2013, he published Obama in the Middle East, the best study of uh, American foreign policy during the Obama period uh, in the region. And in 2017, uh, ISIS, a history, uh, also with Princeton University Press. Uh, And in addition to all of these books, uh, he's published two edited volumes on the Arab Spring and on other forms of contentious politics, protest, and resistance in the region. So uh, he's really been uh, embarrassingly prolific, impressively prolific. And so you can imagine my mixed feelings when one day at home I was minding my own business and the door bell rang and this was delivered. Uh, so I dropped my cat and cup of coffee and uh, immersed myself in this brilliant book, which, as you'll hear today, uh, is a revisiting of Egyptian history from uh, the period of Nasser uh, and uh, Said Qutb. Uh, from the 50s up into the period of Mubarak and then Morsi and beyond in a way that challenges uh, and uh, revises our understanding of the relationship between Nasserism and Islamism in uh, not only Egyptian politics and history, but in the Middle East and the Muslim world more broadly. So without further ado, uh, let me uh, say the following. We have um, a hashtag for this uh, event and a podcast in due course uh, should come out. This is a recorded event. The hashtag for the event is uh, hashtag LSE Arab World. Uh, Please put your phones on silent and join your hands together to welcome Fawaz Jerjes. Good evening. Uh, And John, once again, I want to thank you for taking the time from your family and and to chair this event. It means really I'm deeply appreciated. And thank you for taking the time from your busy schedules to come and attend uh, this uh, presentation. Uh, Before I lay out my arguments uh, in my book, Making the Arab World, uh, let me start first by citing uh, the United Nations General Secretary just about 10 days ago. Uh, There was a big debate at the Security Council uh, about the Syrian crisis. And I'm here uh, quoting... uh, from his address to the Security Council. He said, the Middle East is in uh, chaos, uh, and in chaos today, that's what he, uh, I'm paraphrasing uh, now, he said, it has become a threat to international security and peace, and Syria is the most threatening crisis in the world today. Uh, And then the UN chief added, he said that, Specifically, the highly volatile, volatile Middle East. Uh, can't see anymore. Uh, 
the situation in the region uh, risks strategic escalation, uh, fragmentation, and division with profound regional and global implications, not just for the Middle East, but also for the international system. He added that the Cold War is back, and is back with a vengeance, but with a uh, difference, because safeguards that managed the risk of escalation uh, in the past uh, no longer seem to be present today, either in the Middle East or the international system. I want to use, I want to come back to uh, the Secretary General's comments later on in my presentation, but I want to make about, because it, it's, it's a massive book, I, I don't want to focus on one particular argument, I mean the main argument. I want to just lay out the arguments in terms, in particular for students, in terms of 10 or 11 points. And please remember, I'm, I'm, I will be simplifying a great deal um, about uh, a very complex subject, that is the clash, the violent clash between secular-leaning nationalists and Islamists in the Arab world that's really started in the early part uh, of the 1950s uh, and still basically raging today. The first point that I want to make in reference to the General Secretary's comments about the crisis in the Middle East is that the raging civil wars and conflicts in Syria, in Libya, the violent confrontation between the Egyptian authorities and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, must be examined within the broader historical struggle that started immediately after the end of the colonial moment and still unfolding today in the Middle East. This is a very important to keep in mind that what's happening, what's happening in Egypt after the Arab Spring uprisings, what's happening to Syria, what's happening in Libya to a large extent, is really part of a historical clash. Uh, started in 1954 and still unfolding today, with profound implications to state and society in the Middle East and also international security. Again, I'll come back to the implications about the implications of this particular struggle between secular-leaning nationalists and Islamists in the uh, Middle East, in particular uh, in the Arab world. The second point I want to make, and I make very much in my book, is that the fracturing of the anti-colonial movement uh, the anti-colonial move movement, which basically, uh, I mean, was a major force in the late 19th century in particular and then in the early part of the 20th century, 1920s and 1930s and 1940s. The fracturing of the anti-colonial movement was a major watershed in the modern history of the Middle East. Why so? When I say the anti-colonial movement, uh, I'm talking about really multiple layers existed within the anti-colonial movement, secular uh, voices, liberal voices, religious voices, national voices. It was a very complex and diverse anti-colonial movement. And the anti-colonial movement, not just, it, of course, the, 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 the center was Egypt for a variety of reasons. We can talk about why Egypt. But the anti-colonial movement, the major agenda of the anti-colonial movement was about progress, cultural renewal, open society, individual rights. Major people look back and say the Middle East is a wasteland. It's a wasteland of, the question is if we, and, and I, it matters a great deal to me to revisit this particular moment, um, you know, uh, 1890s up to the 1940s. And I wanted to understand what happened to the anti-colonial movement. What happened to the promises, this diverse, complex uh, movement? And I think, again, I'm, I'm going to simplify and say that three major factors contributed to the fracturing of the anti-colonial movement. 
in particular, it was the, uh, I would argue, uh, it was basically the heavy-handed tactics of uh, British colonial authorities, of course, uh, from the late 19th century up to the 1940s, uh, together with the monarchy, <coughs> the, the short-sightedness of the monarchy, the Egyptian monarchy, not to mention also the failures of the semi-liberal forces to deliver on their promises to expand the social and political uh, space in Egypt. Uh, and the reason why I, I focus on this, the fracturing of the anti-colonial movement, if we really want to understand why pluralism and democracy really have not flourished in the Arab world, we have to visit this particular moment, the 1920s, the 1930s, and 1940s, why liberal politics failed, what were the major drivers and causes, because what happened, the failures of the semi-liberal forces as a result of British colonial authorities and the monarchies, really triggered a moment of frustration triggered a moment of, you might say, reflection on liberal politics and pluralistic politics. And also it brought up, it, it, it caused and, and, and brought about the emergence of two major anti-hegemonic movements, illiberal nationalism and illiberal Islamism. The birth, people don't realize what happened, that it was only in the 1930s and 1940s that liberal politics became a casualty, and you have what you have here is that authentic and identity politics emerge with a vengeance in the region. Again, if any one of you in particular for students really want to understand why the absence of democracy, the absence of pluralism, and the prevalence of authoritarianism, we need to visit this particular moment, this moment between the 1920s and 1940s, because this particular moment was pregnant with possibilities possibilities of pluralism and open society and elections and all the mechanisms of democracy. Again, I'm, I'm simplifying. I want, I want to move to them. a third point. Uh, <clears throat> and I think uh, to the, the, the fracturing of the anti-colonial movement and the emergence of identity politics, anti-hegemonic movement, in particular illiberal nationalism and illiberal uh, Islamism, really paved the way for the political earthquake in Egypt in 1952 and the toppling of the monarchy in 1952. Again, I don't have the time to go into what happened in Egypt in this particular period in the 1940s. But suffice it to say, what I'm trying to say is that the emergence of the secular leaning, and remember I keep saying secular leaning as opposed to secular because they were not really, they, they are very few secular forces. Uh, I mean, it's the emergence of these uh, identity politics movement, anti-hegemonic movement, really paved the way for the coup d'etat in Egypt in 1952, the free officers, the young free officers. And probably, I, I don't know how many of you know this, but if, you, if I, I revisited this particular, and I was really impressed by the strategic collaboration between the Islamist and the nationalist free offices from the late 1940s up to 1954. 1954. Major strategic collaboration between the secular-leaning nationalist forces and the Islamists culminated in, uh, in the coup. In fact, one of the chapters is called in, in my book Best of Friends to Bitter Enemies. In the space of two years, after major I mean, collaboration between nationalists and Islamists, they came to very heavy blows in 1954. Uh, and this particular clash was not really about uh, competing visions of the state, of the political. This particular clash between the Muslim brothers, that was the most important social 
and political and influential political movement and the free offices, it was about power. It was about the distribution of power. It was about decision-making. That's what it really it was about. Uh, the Muslim brothers wanted to have a major say in the political process, in the decision-making process, while Gamal Abdel Nasser and the few people around him said, well, look, we took the risks. We must really basically be in charge, as opposed to really he offered the Muslim Brotherhood some, uh, 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 I mean, a role in the political process, uh, but of course they refused. But I, I want to just... The, the big point here, what I'm trying to talk about, is that this struggle, this initial clash between the Islamist and the secular-leaning nationalist, it was really more about the role of the state. It was about power. It was not about ideology, per se. Even though, I'll come back to the role of ideology, this initial struggle that was about power and about the role of the state really mutated and escalated into more visceral, more uh, ideological. Uh, I, can, I, I would be more than delighted to answer any questions, try to answer any questions you have uh, later on to really add more meat to my uh, uh, simplistic uh, arguments. And here, <clears throat> just to, to, to highlight, neither the Islamists nor the secular-leaning nationalists, the free officers, were really internally cohesive. The Muslim brothers were not a monolith in the 1950s, and they are neither a monolith now in 2017, never. In fact, there were major, major, uh, uh, I mean, differences and power struggles both within the free officers and within the Islamists uh, from the beginning to the end. In fact, really one of the major, I mean, uh, contribution I make is to show the fluidity and the tensions and the contradictions and the fragmentation within both movements, social movements, the free officers and the Islamists. I want to come back. This is a very important point to highlight. I want to come back to it in my presentation later on, a few minutes. Enter Gamal Abdel Nasser. Gamal Abdel Nasser, a leading character in uh, my book. It was, even though he was not really the most powerful officer within the uh, free officers movement, he basically emerged as the dominant force uh, you know, in, 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 in probably six, seven months. What he did, and again, I'm simplifying, he clamped down against all political voices in Egypt. The old parties, the parties, the political parties of the old regime, uh, the Marxists, even many of the free officers, many of his own friends, and I interviewed quite a few friends, uh, some of the free officers. He basically wanted to monopolize power. And finally, when the Muslim brothers, when the Islamists refused to play by his rule, he basically clamped down and clamped down very hard against the Muslim brothers in 1954. Again, I don't have the time to flesh out what I mean by this violent struggle. I, I hope you'll, you'll purchase the book. Uh, so, you, because I, I spent a great deal of time on, on this nature of the violent struggle and what, what Kamal Abdel Nasser did. Uh, but out of this particular violent struggle between Gamal Abdel Nasser, who basically took control of the three officers' movement and the Muslim brothers, emerged the, a new brand, a new variant of revolutionary Islamism in Egypt and the Arab world itself. Uh, that is, <clears throat> the, this particular clash 
people talk about the rise of Salafi jihadism. We talk about it in 19, let's say, 1980s and 1990s, and then, you know, post, uh, you know, uh, 9/11. People don't realize that it was in really in the late 1950s that this particular variant, this particular uh, faction of revolutionary uh, Islamism that emerged in the Egyptian prisons as a result of uh, torture, as a result of abuse, as a result of humiliation. And here, again, the, 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 the character, the leader, the figure who basically spearheaded this particular revolutionary Islamism was Sayyid Qutb the other leading character in my book, uh, my book called Nasser Qutb and the Clash that Shaped the Middle East. It's really the story of two men, Kamal Abdel Nasser and uh, Sayyid Qutb. And I think it's this particular bloody struggle between the Nasserists and the Qutbians that has shaped the modern Middle Eastern history and still playing and folding till today. You all know what happened in Egypt in 2013. I'll come back to that. Uh, that this is not just a historical struggle. It's still playing now on the street, on the Arab streets, even though it has taken different forms. It has mutated into different, uh, uh, and also expanded into Arab countries. I want to spend a few time on Nasser and Qutb. Uh, I, again, I don't need to tell you that Nasser and Qutb are the two most fascinating characters in modern Middle Eastern history. Uh, I mean, now... If you, if you read the dominant version, the dominant narrative is that somehow Nasser and Qutb are seen as diametrically, I mean, opposed, as violently opposed to each other, as philosophically opposed to each other. Uh, in fact, this could be really further the truth. In fact, um, Nasser and Qutb could have ended in each other's place. Uh, in fact, they have really reached their own destination through many twists and personal ambitions and turns. Just to give you an idea about what I mean, and again, I, I, really the book, there are two books. There is the biography of Nasser and Qutb, and there is the relationship, the encounter between secular-leaning Arab nationalism and Islamism. Uh, I mean, probably most of you know that Sayyid Qutb was a secular-leaning liberal uh, public intellectual in the 1920s and 1930s and early 1940s. Sayyid Qutb did not join the Islamist movement, the Muslim Brotherhood, till 1953, a few months before he basically was arrested by Nasser. Between 1952 and the late 1953, Sayyid Qutb was the mouthpiece of the Free Officers Movement. Uh, that is, again, the question is it's very easy, and take Gamal Abdel Nasser, Gamal Abdel Nasser joined the Muslim Brotherhood in the 1940s, and in fact he was a member of the underground paramilitary organization established by the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna. Um, so the clash between Gamal Abdel Nasser and between Sayyid Qutb, the clash between secular-leaning Arab nationalism and uh, Islamism was contingent. Um, this was not really set in stone. Uh, Sayyid Qutb I call him in my book the accidental Islamist. He was really accidental because Sayyid Qutb could have, I mean, turned out to be either a secular, liberal, public intellectual or nationalist. And Gamal Abdel Nasser, I call him the accidental nationalist. Even though, if you read the dominant narrative, they seem to be, I mean, both sides. I mean, they look at Nasser and Qutb somehow. 
But the reality is, I mean, here's the irony of the modern history, and if you follow the story of the two leading characters, from a secular-leaning liberal public intellectual in the 1920s and 1930s and early 1940s into the foremost master ideologue of revolutionary Islamism. Uh, I don't need to tell you about the, the role and the place that Sayyid Qut plays within the Islamist movement, in particular within the Salafi Islamist jihadist movement. I'm not saying there is a I mean, direct line between Sayyid Qutb and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, but Sayyid Qutb has influenced, has inspired multiple generations of Salafi jihadists, not only his writings, but his life, his life story. And I really spend a lot of time, I, I, I'm not you know, pontificating, I spent really quite a while interviewing all the surviving disciples who spent 10 years with him in prison between 1954 and 1964. Because to me, I really wanted to see what happened in the prison years. I wanted to really, uh, I mean, tell the story, follow the, tell his journey. And it's fascinating. And also the story with, with Kamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, and the reason, the reason why uh, I spend a lot of time and I, I focus a great deal on the contingency of their journey is to really deconstruct the entrenched narratives that have become set in stone and sacred in modern Arab history. So it's not just an analytical exercise. It's not just a conceptual exercise. The civil wars, the ammunition, both sides now, the, the disciples of Nasser, the nationalists, and of course the nationalists now, we're talking about the military now. I mean, the militaries uh, have become the vanguard of the nationalists because the nationalists are deeply divided. And well, really when, when I say the, the, the secular-leaning nationalists, I'm talking about the militaries, whether you're talking about Egypt or whether you're talking about, uh, I mean, uh, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, or Hafez al-Assad and, and Bashar al-Assad. I'll come back to that in particular. But I, I follow, I, I spend a lot of time to tell the story um, and tell the complexity and of the, this particular clash this titanic clash, it's, it's presented as a titanic existential clash between Arab nationalism and Islamism. But I follow the two men, and it's the stories through the eyes and the voices of the two men that really one can understand. Um, I mean, the, 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 the complexity and also the uh, tragedy of this particular uh, story. This... <clears throat> Let's bring me to my, my six point, point six. Uh, again, even though I want to come back to the role of ideology versus the role of power, I, I still think uh, that the role of it, it, the struggle in the region is really more about power, more about capturing the state than really about any ideological vision, uh, uh, even today in Egypt. Uh, what's the vision that Abdel Fattah Sisi has for Egypt. Abdel Fattah Sisi, I mean, even when, when he uh, toppled uh, uh, Mohammed Morsi, uh, it was ironic, not for me, but how he wrapped himself in the cloth of Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, the supporters of Abdel Fattah Sisi portray him to be, he was trying to rescue al-Dawla al-Wataniya, the national state, that the Islamists were trying to hijack the state, the national state, again, even, even Nasser imagery and language and, uh, were basically uh, reinvented uh, in order to really justify and legitimize uh, both sides. Uh, even the Islamists in Egypt portrayed Abdel Fattah Sisi as another Gamal Abdel Nasser, a tyrant, a dictator, who basically uh, was using blood 
iron and blood to uh, delegitimize the popular will. Uh, uh, even though the conflict, I mean, I mean, even though both sides depict the conflict in existential terms, in cultural terms, even intellectuals now, I mean, you have a poet like Adonis, who basically, Adonis, one of the prominent Arab poets, he portrays the conflict in cultural terms. This is an existential conflict for Adonis. The Islamists represent the new herd who are trying to destroy whatever exists uh, in modern Arab uh, history. I'm, I'm fully aware of the nexus of ideology and power. You know, in particular, some of you students, you know that this is, it's, there's fluidity to the nexus of ideology and power. But I look at ideology in the book. Ideology is a secondary importance in relation to power. That's one of the major arguments I make throughout, from 1954 uh, to the present. I don't take ideology seriously by both sides, and I'll, I'll say a few words about it, and I would be delighted if you challenge my argument, uh, even though some people think that this is really now it's all about ideology. Of course, when you talk about person like Ayman Zawahiri and Osama bin Laden and Abu Mas'ab al-Zarqawi and Abu Muhammad Julani, yeah, ideology matters a great deal. I'm talking about the mainstream movements, uh, mainly the Muslim brothers and the militaries now who basically are the vanguard of the secular-leaning nationalist uh, movement. But nevertheless, I mean, this is more of an, some of you might say, academic debate. Uh, uh, I think uh, both movements remain very much captives and prisoners of the past, past narratives, narratives about the self and narratives about the other. This is, even though it's about power, but that's how it's seen. And what happened after the Arab Spring uprisings, in particular in Egypt, shows very clearly and I'm not advocating any structural argument here. I'm not saying that we need to take historical memory and imagination very seriously. The narratives have really become deeply entrenched. If you read carefully what both sides, uh, disciples of both sides, followers of both sides, uh, it, it's seen as such. It's not seen as more of contingent clash. Uh, I mean, the supporters and followers of nationalism believe that they, what's at stake is a dawla al-wataniya the nation-state, the nation-state being more of a relatively civilian state, relatively civilian, secular state, where the Islamists somehow view the military as, as I've said earlier, that the military is trying to uh, hammer a nail in the coffin of the uh, popular uh, will. Uh, and I think despite the fragmentation and diversity of both movements, uh, Time and again, and this is another point I want to make, uh, and, and this is really very much central uh, to my argument, that despite the fragmentation, despite the tension, despite the contradiction, both movements, secular-leaning nationalists and Islamists, in particular I'm talking about mainstream Islamists, they have basically implicitly time and again collaborated in order to prevent the emergence of a third alternative in modern Arab society. Time and again. I'm going to just provide some examples in a very simplistic way. Just to give you an idea, I mean, in many ways, uh, both the Islamist and the secular-leaning nationalists, they have a vast interest to maintain really a hegemonic hold on Arab societies and uh, uh, fragments of political imagination. Take Sadat. I said a great deal about uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser. I mean, 
here you have, even though Sadat was part of the Nasser's entourage and the power structure, when Sadat came to power, he wanted to basically undermine and weaken the socialist and the leftist and the radical nationalist forces in Egypt because he wanted to build his own legacy. He wanted to escape from the legacy of Gamal Abdel Nasser. What did Nasser, what did Anwar Sadat do? Anwar Sadat co-opted mainstream Islamist forces, uh, big times. Not just Sadat, but even it was Sadat was part of the old revolution in the Gulf. But again, here you have the state led by Anwar Sadat playing a critical role in co-opting the Islamists in order to prevent the leftist and progressive forces and really of becoming a major force in Egyptian society, in particular under uh, his leadership. Let's move forward to Mubarak, and, and I spend a lot of time, I, I give plenty of examples. I mean, think of, if you look at the Mubarak, I mean, in, in, in the, in the uh, I mean, reign of Mubarak, that time and again, Mubarak and the Muslim brothers made sure that they created really tactical alliances in order to prevent the emergence of any kind of semi-liberal progressive forces in Egypt. Uh, take the Arab Spring uprising in Egypt. Think of how the military command collaborated with the Muslim brothers to basically shift the debate from the street, shift the struggle from the streets into the electoral box because the military apparatus and the Muslim brothers realized very well that by shifting the debate from the street, trying to deactivate the protest and, and, and changing the nature of the protest, basically they would really undermine any kind of emergence of a new third alternative force. This was a, a, a classic case whereby both you have the military, which is the vanguard, of the nation state and the Islamists collaborating and the Muslim brothers again time and again being short-sighted uh, play the game uh, at, at, at great costs to them uh, multiple times uh, even ironically I, I have a chapter on how the Muslim brothers acted in 1952 1954 and 19, uh, 2012 2014 truly like a broken record I mean repeat the Muslim brothers basically collaborated with Nasser and particularly and the free officers to basically destroy the other forces and voices in Egyptian society. In the same way, the Islamists between 2012 and 2014 played a sinister game in order to, because their idea they wanted, of course, to gain power. And gaining power is through the state itself because of their own experience. Again, it tells you a great deal about how these two hegemonic anti-hegemonic movement have really stifled and undermined the emergence of any third force of any kind uh, uh, alternative, uh, in particular uh, liberal force uh, in uh, Middle Eastern societies. They monopolize social and political space and the discourse. They militarize the politics, and as a result of their violent clash, they put, they put out civil society, society at a war footing from 1954 uh, to the present. Uh, and here, another major point I want to make. How much time do I have? Uh, Maybe 10 more minutes. Uh, I take less than that. Uh, I, I, I talked about, I, I started my presentation by saying this violent long war between the secular-leaning nationalists 
and Islam is not just fascinating for what it is. I mean, this is, but there are major profound consequences to state and society. Uh, it's not just about the fact that secular-leaning nationalists now represented by the militaries and the Islamists mainly uh, have prevented the emergence of any alternative third force. Uh, in fact, they have militarized the political process in the region. Uh, uh, and, and militarized state-society relations. Uh, they have contributed, I would argue, and I spend a lot of time, to the expansion of the deep and wide state. Uh, and also, they prevented the emergence of a cohesive national identity, an identity free of the two hegemonies that have dominated the region uh, in the past uh, 60 years. In a way, uh, <clears throat> any understanding really, of why authoritarianism, political authoritarianism, is very prevalent. And I know political scientists are very fond, and I, I, I am part of political science, of theorizing, of using categories. But we need to really pay attention to historical sociology and political history in the region to understand how, for example, this violent struggle affected the political process, the, 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 the kind of imaginations, and, and why decolonization has not really ushered in a major rapture in the region itself. I wonder, can we really understand what has happened in the region without understanding the role and the influence of this particular struggle between secular-leaning national? I'm not saying this is it. It's a box. You can put everything, dump everything in this particular box. It has to be taken into account uh, seriously uh, because it's still unfolding today. Uh, it's unfolding before our eyes. It's unfolding in Egypt. It's unfolding in Syria. It's unfolding in Libya and other places. I've started my presentation by citing the United Nations Secretary General about, because my the title of my talk is called The Struggle for the Arab World. And I've mainly now I've spent time on really looking at the internal struggles, on, 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 on the components of the internal struggle, you know, simplistically, not much time. Uh, but this violent struggle has never been confined, as you all know, to borders within the region itself, never. In fact, any kind of understanding of this nature of this particular political, this power struggle, uh, which is, has to take into account really the role of external players, because both movements from 1950s to the present have repeatedly labored very hard to co-opt external powers to bring in external support to gain strategic advantage over their rivals. Time and again, I mean, during the Cold War, I don't have the time to flesh out. I mean, take, and I know this probably, for some of you, might come as a surprise. For others, probably you know this. From 1958 to 1989, the United States of America has consciously and explicitly aligned itself with conservative religious forces, Islamic states, and movement against what it called radical, socialist, and godless movements in the region. The Afghan Jihad was not the first, it was the last, one of the last ventures of the United States. In fact, again, facts, empirics, we're not talking, you cannot understand why the radical, secular-leaning nationalists lost this particular struggle without really the role of the United States and the Western powers. The Emergence, the triumph of the religious conservative voices. And here I'm talking about it was the, the, the struggle itself became enmeshed in the Arab Cold War. And the United States was 
I mean, decisively and decidedly on the side of religious, conservative, Islamist forces, Islamic state, Islamic movements. American, I mean, President Eisenhower made it very clear specifically. And I, I cite one of the National Security Council members, and he said, we need to create a, an Islamist alternative, an Islamic alternative to this kind of all-powerful force that was called radical nationalism, even though radical nationalism was more of a secular leaning, was more of a more progressive, forward-looking, cosmopolitan. This, this really goes to the very heart. I mean, I, it, it's a major theme in the struggle. So when, when the Secretary General talks about the relationship, the organic links between the internal and the regional and the international, it's happening today. I mean, think of what President Abdel Fattah Sisi and Bashar al-Assad are doing now. That's exactly because, of course, even though the United States from 1956, 1958 to 1989 aligned itself, with conservative religious movement and Islamic State and forces, the end of the Cold War and in particular 9-11 brought about a conceptual shift in the way that the United States and the Western powers view religious conservative forces, in particular Islamist movement. Major change, major shift. Because American, the American foreign policy elite supposedly learned its lessons. So what you have now is that the, 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 the militaries in the region, whether it's President Assisi, whether President Mubarak or President Assisi or Assad, now they play the Islamic card. They are trying to, I mean, preserve and defend the national state. I mean, think of what Assad, Assad's speeches and rhetoric. Uh, he presents himself as a kind of defender and guardian of a more secular, more tolerant, more diverse society against the Islamists, the Muslim brothers and others, even though we know the, the intricacies of the relationship between the Middle Eastern states, the Arab states, and other political uh, forces. So I, I, I mean, I, I, I really want you to take into account that uh, what the Secretary General, the United Nations Secretary General said, about the relationship because, yes, I mean, regional powers, and we learn this from the Cold War, do suck in external powers. Um, and the war in proxies that's happening in the region is, I mean, there is a kind of organic links between the internal struggles. I mean, even, even the so-called, I mean, think about it, even the, the, the so-called sectarian clash, the so-called sectarian clash, it's a variant of this really struggle. Uh, what the Sunni Arab states are saying now, we are defending the nation state against the hordes of Shiite religious extremism. And it, that's exactly, you, you can really look at it in, in this particular way. They are now standing up and saying, we are now defending the nation state against uh, Shiite Iran and against Vilayat al-Faqih uh, in Iran. It tells you a great deal. And even though it's not stated very explicitly, but that's really, we can, we can, that's how the rhetoric and the discourse and the narratives are basically uh, presented in the region. Finally, I come back to a point I made, the final point I want to make that, to, I mean, I, I've spent a long time really, to me, this particular is really very personal, this particular book, because really, in a way, what I, I wanted to do is to deconstruct. Because everywhere, I mean, I, I, I spent years really walking in the region, and time and again, in particular Egypt. Uh, Egypt is really where th this particular clash 
started and where this particular clash unfolds in Egypt. Not only it's the most populous state, the cultural capital of the Arab world, it's where, but it, it, to me it really is an attempt to deactivate the cultural minefields. It's to really show, in, in, because at the end of the day, the civil wars and the conflicts are going to end, and you need, I mean, what historians, and you need to really basically show that there is nothing really sacred about the so-called religious wars that are unfolding in the region. So in a way, I hope that this particular book really makes a very humble contribution, a very humble footnote to the deactivation of the cultural minefields that have basically been extremely costly to both state and society and also have major international implications as well. Thank you. We now have plenty of time for uh, Q&A. Uh, and I think it makes sense to try and bundle up a bunch of questions, uh, and uh, Fawaz will take them over here. So uh, we have one in the middle of the audience, the gentleman with his hand up, and then uh, Madalia Rashid in the back. Um, thank you very much for your talk. Um, my first question is, um, obviously in the struggle for the Arab world, there's one country many people talk about, and that's Palestine. Um, where do you see Palestine in the in the midst of all of this. And then my second question is, moving forward to today, Mohammed bin Salman, um, where do you see him in this? And um, where do you see um, Saudi Arabia going forward now? Thanks. Uh, um, thank you, Fawaz, for uh, an interesting presentation, and I'm looking forward to reading the book. Um, I'd like to, um, you know, you, you presented the, uh, the situation as a struggle between two uh, groups that are uh, competing for power, with ideology being secondary. But I'd like to just ask a sociological question. Uh, these two movements um, obviously were competing for the hearts and minds of people on, in Egypt and elsewhere in the Arab world. Could you please tell us something about uh, the sociological comp uh, constituencies of these movements? Were they uh, similar? Um, so I, I just sense that you have not given that any attention in the presentation, but I, I, I'm it's looking forward point. to reading you, the book. So in Egypt itself. Um, and the other question is related to this struggle, um, and it's, it's like focusing on it uh, in a way uh, makes us sort of forget about the wider uh, regional context in which it was taking place. So um, without looking, I mean, you mentioned at the end how these groups uh, suck in regional or perhaps international players into the, into the scene. But uh, most importantly, in the struggle in Egypt during that period was how other monarchies, for example, were drawn into this by supporting one group against the other. So is there a way of elaborating on that, please? Thanks. Thank you. Two more questions we take for the first round. So Pete Wilson in the back. And Thanks, Faos, for a fascinating lecture. Uh, I wonder if you could say something about U.S. involvement, and in particular its support for Islamicist elements between 1954 and uh, 1989. Was this support, in your view, crude and short or was it in the context of the Cold War understandable and therefore the story is not so much one of folly but tragedy? Thanks. 
Thank you. Could you, um, Nasser wrote a famous book, The Philosophy of the Revolution, when he talked of the Arab world, the Islamic or the African world. I wonder whether you could just say a few words on his book and its relevance today, The Philosophy of the Revolution. If I remember, that's one of the books Nasser wrote, The Philosophy of the Revolution. Thanks. Shall we? Funny, I think. Uh, Palestine, I mean, I, 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 again, Palestine was very central, very key to both camps. Uh, the Muslim Brothers, time and again, they really showcase their support for the Palestine cause. In fact, uh, there are many pamphlets and many books written by the Muslim Brothers to say that from in the 1930s and in the Palestine War in 1947-1948, the Muslim Brothers played a very important role in the fight, fight much more important than even Arab armies. Uh, many of the senior members of the uh, uh, military armed apparatus, uh, who were basically disciples of Qutb and spent years with them, they basically showed me some of the wounds that they basically suffered in the Palestine War. Uh, very, very important, uh, both ideologically and in terms of epistemology, and also in terms of uh, for the hearts and minds, for not only for the Egyptians, but for the larger Arab and Islamic uh, forces. In the case of uh, Nasser, again, uh, Nasser uh, used to, I mean, the, the idea of Nasser the Lion of the Arabs, uh, the, the person who was going to liberate uh, Palestine, uh, and on and on and on, very central to his discourse uh, and also to his Arab nationalist ideology. In this particular sense, really, the question of Palestine is very much central to the frustration of the post-colonial aspirations of both movements. Uh, we know what happened to Nasser and Palestine. In fact, his defeat in 1967. Uh, was a, a fatal blow to both his, I mean, uh, leadership, his charisma, his even his project. Uh, and the Islamists still continue to say that they are the most equipped and the most qualified to basically uh, lead the fight against uh, uh, Israel. So it's really very central, uh, the question of Palestine, because you can be the most important anti-hegemonic movement in the Arab world without taking on Palestine. I mean, this is a central plank in the imagination, in the popular imagination in the region. Really, it's across the board. Uh, in terms of the, the sociological constituencies of both, I mean, again, uh, if you look at really Nasser and Qutb themselves, I mean, they, similar social backgrounds, lower middle class, uh, they all come from similar uh, – the Muslim Brothers, of course, has a larger constituency, social constituency. Madawi, one of the major reasons why the free officers wanted to or collaborated with the Islamists in the late 1940s and early 1950s because they had no social constituency whatsoever. They were really naked. Uh, they believed that they could really basically convince the Muslim Brothers to play a junior partner and co-opt the social constituency of the Muslim brothers, one of the major reasons. In fact, Abdel Nasser, when the Muslim brothers would not play uh, uh, politics, would not play a uh, game with the free officers, he established the so-called Hayat al-Tahir. It's a kind of a, a propaganda uh, outfit. 
and he wanted to use Hayat Tahrir, he, he tried to convince the Muslim brothers to basically, uh, I mean, uh, get rid of the brand or the, the term Muslim brothers and join Hayat Tahrir, this particular, uh, because he wanted to establish his own social constituency. We know what happened. It was between 1954 and 19, really the late 1960s, where the three officers, in particular Nasser, tried to create a constituency of his own. And in terms of land reforms, in terms of industrialization, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of this was really a major concern. And in many ways, regardless of what you say about Gamal Abdel Nasser, regardless of, I mean, his authoritarianism, his anti-democratic credential, his monopoly of the political space, his monstrous miscalculation, Gamal Abdel Nasser between 1954 and 1967 succeeded in creating a massive middle class, massive middle class. And even today, I mean, if you go to Egypt, the, the, the huge middle class that exists in Egypt, in Egypt today is really a testament to the relative success of Gamal Abdel Nasser and his called Arab socialist uh, policies. But they, the three officers, they had no constituency whatsoever. That's why in the 1940s, not only in terms of social constituency, Gamal Abdel Nasser joined the Muslim Brothers, the underground apparatus, because he believed the Muslim Brothers are the only movement equipped to basically take on the imperialist and take on the Zionist. This was really central. And that's why when the violent clash really uh, occurred, Gamal Abdel Nasser was so terrified of the Muslim brothers, he wanted to make sure to decimate the movement. Tens of thousands were arrested. He was obsessed, obsessed because he, he, he knew the prowess of the Muslim brothers. And, and that's why he not only arrested most of their leaders and rank and file, I mean, he, he basically, when he, the debate, this is just a, a kind of footnote, when the three officers, when Gamal Abdel Nasser, they were debating the plight of Sayyid Qutb. He was arrested in 1965, and Sayyid Qutb was accused of basically leading an underground movement while he was in prison. He was. It's called At-Tanzim al-Suri, the secret apparatus. Gamal Abdel Nasser was the decisive vote. He decided, he believed that by sending Sayyid Qutb to the gallows, that would deliver a fatal blow to the Islamist movement and the Muslim Brothers. We know what happened. Of course, he sent Sayyid Qutb to the gallows in 1966. That particular decision turned Sayyid Qutb into a martyr, turned Sayyid Qutb. That particular, I mean, the death of Sayyid Qutb, the story of Sayyid Qutb really has become a major inspirational uh, story for the Islamists. And it was, according to his chief of staff, it was Kamal Abdel Nasser personally who basically decided, because he believed that that's the only way you can get rid of the uh, Islamist. Of course, I really spend a lot of time, even though you know how we, we academics, we, we, we exaggerate in, in, because we want to make an argument, so we try to, so even though the story really is about Egypt, I try to bring in, um, I mean, the, the, the regional context very much because I want to tell a story not just about Egypt, but use Egypt as a case and generalize about the case study. And the Arab Cold War, I mean, you can't talk about the secular-leaning nationalists and the Islamists without talking about the Arab Cold War that involved Gamal Abdel Nasser on the one hand and the conservative monarchists. I mean, that's why when I say that the Americans align themselves with conservative religious forces, they align themselves in particular with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was seen as the most important player 
in trying to counter, and this is not my words. American policymakers believe that only Saudi Arabia could provide a hegemonic alternative to uh, Abdel Nasser. And again, if you look at the Arab Cold War, I spend a lot of time, you know the story about the Arab Cold War, what happened. But it, it's, it was the American support, and of course, the miscalculation of Gamal Abdel Nasser, and also the divisions within the various movements. I mean, I hardly said anything about, I'm talking about the secular-leaning nationalists. In fact, the, 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 the differences and the divisions within the nationalist movement itself was much more insidious and deadly to the nationalist movement. You know, the May crisis in 1967, it was basically the fight and the struggle between the nationalists, the Egyptian nationalists, and the Basists that led Gamal Abdel Nasser to miscalculate monstrously in May 1967 and to basically make those terrible decisions. He really fell into Israel's trap. As a result, not of the nationalist Islamist struggle, but the nationalist nationalist struggle. Again, it tells you about the complexity of the story itself. To come back to, I mean, to even Americans now, I mean, this was the, the triumph of the globalist paradigm, the globalist prism. That is everything from, I mean, what we call the Cold War warriors. This was not just the Afghan war, it was really, the, the, I mean, the, the Alan Dallas and the brothers, and it was the hardcore uh, Cold War warriors from the mid-1950s. They believed that they'll do anything, anything. They would not stop at anything in order to defeat the evil empire. It doesn't, what it takes, I mean, it was, we, we had certain moments, what we call regionalist prism. That is, the John F. Kennedy was just, and the Carter for the first one or two years. But the reality, it was, of course, it was disastrous. It was disastrous not only because of 9-11, because in many ways, the balance of power, the United States and the Cold War tilted the balance of power in favor of the conservative religious forces. Uh, that is, regardless of what you think of the secular leaning, those forces, I mean, they were forward-looking, modernist, they, they were involved in, yes, they were anti-democratic, but I think in the, in the overall assessment, I think uh, it, was a, it was tragic, but also it was catastrophic in terms of really decision-making. Uh, on the part of the United States. Should we take another? There was the question about um, Nasser's. Oh, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> but the, the, the funny thing about the philosophy of revolution uh, was the testament of Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, ironically, now, it, in the past few years, it has transpired that he did not really write the philosophy of revolution. Uh, it was uh, Muhammad Hassanan Haikal who basically guided Nasser to... I mean, the philosophy of revolution is more of a statement about Nasser's vision for Egypt and his experience in the Palestine War and how the Palestine War shaped his imagination. He served, he was sent by the Egyptian government to help the Palestinians in 1947-1948. And he came from... He was under siege by the Jewish forces, irregular Jewish forces in Fallujah for quite a while. That particular experience shaped his worldview. He said he came from Palestine. He believed that the only way to really liberate Palestine was to liberate Egypt itself, that the, the change has to come from within, from Egypt itself, that the near enemy, the near enemy was much more important than the far enemy, that the, the near enemy being the monarchy itself, the Egyptian monarchy. And in the revolution itself, he talked about his vision, that Egypt part of the various circles, the Arab 
circle, the African circle, the Islamic. And of all the circles that Egypt was part of, the Arab circle was the most important. And that's his, you know, confidant, Muhammad Haikal, to his last dying day. He believed that Egypt's destiny lies within the Arab world itself. That is, Egypt cannot survive as a state on its own. It has to be part of this strategic context. Uh, and that's why the debate now in Egypt, it's not just about the Muslim brothers and President Abdel Fattah Sisi. Many Egyptian critics, nationalists, believe that Egypt has basically given up its historical role, being really the leader, the defender of the Arab interest, and particular Palestinian interest. I mean, there is a major shift now. So not only you have, I mean, Israeli uh, siege of Gaza, the Egyptian siege of Gaza is as bloody, if not more so. Uh, again, because of this particular clash, President Abdel Fattah Sisi believes that uh, Hamas is part of the Muslim Brotherhood and it presents an existential threat. So again, it tells you about how much, how this particular struggle has even affected a kind of a really ideational, the ideational uh, uh, I mean, elements and, and features of Egyptian uh, Arab policy and foreign policy as well. Some more questions? Um, gentleman to the left and then in the middle. Uh, hi, you touched uh, briefly on the traditional monarchies uh, in the Gulf, and I was wondering if you could say... No, I can't. It's strange. The sound is really quite... Would you please speak a bit louder? Because sure. I'm, probably I'm an old man. I... Right. Really, it's um, you spoke uh, briefly about the traditional monarchies in the Gulf, uh, and I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about them, uh, where you see them fitting uh, into the analytical framework you've put forward. Uh, for me, and it's probably my ignorance, I'm not clear whether they fall more on the side of the Arab nationalism or on the side of the uh, more traditional religious uh, forces, um, and what might that analysis tell us about the prospects for uh, ambitious young reformers in the region? Oh, you're asking too many great <laughs> questions. I wish I could answer. <laughs> you pass that over. Could you say something about um, the role that Iran plays in the struggle for the Arab world currently? Because we've seen this alliance emerge between the U.S., Israel and Saudi Arabia to confront Iran. They're depicted as this sort of menacing sponsor of terrorism and sort of destabilizing force in the Middle East. And yet if you peer into um, Iran and, uh, you know, despite the government, you have a country with a population of a huge number of highly educated young people. A lot of them are very pro-Western um, and it's, uh, you know, you, the, you can argue that it's actually a, a very paranoid country um, which is keen to integrate with the West. I wonder, what, what, what do you think is the right analysis and has the West got it right? Thanks. And uh, one up there and then in the front. Uh, hi, uh, uh, thanks for the talk. Um, so I'm uh, just wondering, uh, to what extent do you think that uh, global conflict since the Second World War has been mainly aimed at uh, maybe diverting attention from poverty in places like America, in places like Europe, and worldwide, and uh, aimed at uh, kind of perpetuating propaganda by <clears throat> declaring war in Vietnam, by war in the Middle East, um, by war in, 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 in South Asia? Um, so I'm just wondering... Is it more to do with poverty than, than war? 
in general, in general. Thanks. Yes, um, well, I have uh, two brief questions, if I may. Um, the first to follow up on the previous question on Iran. Um, um, under Carter and Reagan, didn't you already see a shift uh, because of the Iranian Revolution from support for uh, an Islamist, um, a tr traditional monarch um, in um, the Shah, um, t uh, to support for um, a, a secular nationalist because, of course, under um, um, uh, uh, President Reagan, um, the uh, U.S. backed um, um, Saddam Hussein quite strongly against against uh, against Iran. And the second question is just one that ha it hasn't been brought up yet. But what a how do you uh, view the situation in Tunisia in this context? Because it does appear to be one country that is trying to move in the direction of what you were talking about, semi-liberal or or uh, pl more pluralist society, perhaps. Um, or democratic society. Thank you so Thank much you. For, for really bringing the question of Tunisia. Can we, shall we have yeah. one, shall we? We have one and then another in the back. Is All that right. too many to take? Can we take another round? Uh, yeah, let's wait for another round. Since I, because I really want to answer the question on Tunisia. It's a very, very important case because really, in a way, this really falsifies the, the, the arguments about this particular uh, continuous clash between secular-leaning secular nationalists and Islamists. Tunisia really offers hope on multiple levels. It's the first case in the Arab world where the Islamist movement and the nationalists and the secular forces and the liberals, really, they are engaging in a kind of reconciliation. The first Arab Islamist movement that basically has come out saying that the popular will, what matters is the popular will, not any kind of an Islamic, any kind of sacred, the, uh, the imagination of the sacred. And both, I mean, the various forces are working very hard at trying to really reconcile their differences and their competing visions. So in many ways, the Tunisian case really provides a different case, a case whereby here you have, I mean, I, I don't need to tell you about uh, Al-Nahda. Uh, I mean, uh, even though Al-Nahda now portrays itself as a different Islamist movement than the Al-Ikhwan, the Muslim brothers. Uh, Rashid Ghanoushi and his cohorts believe that um, the Tunisian Islamists are different than the Egyptian Islamists, even though they have the same uh, sociological foundation and the same historical imagination. But Tunisia is a case study, even though it's a very fragile case, tremendous pressure major social crisis, challenges on multiple levels. I don't need to tell you. But this is really where, I mean, the deactivation of the minefields, of the ideological and cultural minefields in Tunisia could really present. In fact, uh, many Egyptian Islamists point to the Tunisian case as an example to follow. There's a big debate happening uh, among the Muslim brothers, uh, even though now... As, you, as they say in Arabic, la that is, it's the voice of war, that they're both, it's a deadly embrace between the Islamist movement and the Egyptian authorities. But this is a very, very important case, the Tunisian case. I mean, many of us hope that somehow the Tunisian case, the Tunisian model, 
could really provide an authentic Arab model, uh, this kind of reconciliation, um, that is the coexistence of various social movements. And this really takes us back to 1920s, we hope, but in a, a different result. Uh, but it, it's a, a case, it's a situation in progress. It's, it's, it's unfolding before our eyes, and the challenges are overwhelming. I don't need to. And also because uh, Tunisia is not really receiving too much help from the international community. I mean, when, when you talk about Tunisia, unemployment among the semi-educated youth in Tunisia is between 40 and 50 percent. 50 percent of young Tunisians, about 15 million people, are unemployed. The largest contingent within the so-called Islamic State of fighters are Tunisians, between five and 6,000 fighters. You have a major radical Islamist militant constituency for a variety of reasons. But so here you have a very positive, uh, hopeful sign. On the other hand, the challenges are overwhelming. And sadly, neither the European Union nor the United States uh, has been forthcoming in helping uh, Tunisia. I, I think the question of Iran, I want to stay with you for it. It's, it's a very important case because the end of the Cold War, I, I mentioned uh, very in passing, brought about a conceptual shift in the U.S. Uh, perspective regarding the various social forces. Uh, uh, and Iran was an example where here you have a radical uh, Arab nationalist self-styled Arab national, Saddam Hussein. The Americans were willing to collaborate with Saddam Hussein against uh, Islamic Iran. But ironically, at the same time, uh, if you read the memoirs by Przinsky and other policymakers, they believe that even though it was uh, Ayatollah Khomeini who described the United States as the great uh, Satan, they were willing to really forget that and work with the Islamic jihadists in Afghanistan for the greater purpose of defeating the evil empire. Um, so even, even Brzezinski and the foreign policy, the American policy security apparatus, was really to forget them, which is the greatest insult to uh, the empire, the great empire. Uh, and in the sense, but the support for Saddam Hussein, in the same way now, I mean, uh, even this, this is really unspoken, implicit. People say, why doesn't the West intervene in Syria? Because I think the underlying premise is that there is no alternative to Assad. This is the alternative. Nobody says it. But, uh, but this is, there is no conspiracy here. That the European powers, including the, I mean, President Macron said, look, what's the alternative? The alternative, because Bashar al-Assad has succeeded in the same way that Mubarak has succeeded in other, by saying, either me or the jihadists. Either me or Jabhat al-Nusra, either me or the Islamic State. And so, in a way, I mean, the policy, the way it's made, they have to take into account that, yeah, he's a bastard, but a lesser evil than, you know, Abu Muhammad al-Julani or Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi uh, and what have you. Uh, I lost my track. I'm really exhausted. What was the, can you remind me, John, the, the questions? See now. I'm sorry, it's really, it's about me. I'm, I'm, it's been a long day. The question... Yeah, the, the, the... All I can say on this, really, I mean, I, I, I really... Is that you cannot talk about, really, what happens in the region. There is an umbilical cord from 
the 19th century between the region itself and the world for a variety of reasons. Actually, not from 19th century, from Napoleon's invasion of Egypt in 1798. For a variety of reasons. Uh, because, I mean, I think the Middle East, the greater Middle East, is a theater, is a stage on which uh, the Western powers have constantly played, not to mention the economic resources, the black gold, not to mention the strategic waterways, not to mention, I mean, the huge financial portfolios in the region, not to mention the, the Israel and the importance of Israel in American foreign policy. So there are many factors that play into uh, – and the U.S. invasion of Iraq, you know all the debate about, you know, what were the drivers and the causes behind the U.S. invasion. Was it really oil? Uh, it's, it's, it's endless. But uh, the reality is, whether it was in 1798 or the present, um, there are major links and major connections between the region and the global economy, particularly the global economy. And that's what post-colonialists tell you we have – Many scholars who teach that here at the LSE. There were some other questions. You, you asked me about the monarchies. And uh, we, in the Cold War, I mean, we have Maldawi who can much more qualified to answer this question about the, the monarchies. And we know in the Cold War that it was not just Saudi Arabia. It was Saudi Arabia. It was uh, uh, Jordan. Uh, that basically decided, believed that Kamal Abdel Nasser and the Arab nationalism represented an existential threat to their own existence. And the Arab Cold War that unfolded in the region, really, you had two Cold Wars. You had the Global War and the Arab Cold War. Uh, there's a classic book, really a short book. It's about 100 pages by uh, Malcolm Kerr. It's called The Arab Cold War. And this is really gives you everything you need, a classic account of the Arab Cold War. So Saudi Arabia really became the, the, the vanguard of the opposition to Gamal Abdel Nasser. Because Gamal Abdel Nasser, you had the, the idea that somehow Arab nationalism was unstoppable, invincible, that ultimately Gamal Abdel Nasser, he intervened, as you know, the, the United Arab Republic, the union between Egypt and between Syria, and then Egypt's intervention in Yemen. Yemen became really the theater whereby both Egypt and Saudi Arabia fought it very hard. Egypt lost the war for a variety of reasons. Lost the war because... One of the lessons we have learned about Egypt, even though it's the most popular Arab state, even though it's the, it was, I don't know whether it still is, the capital, the cultural production of the Arab world, Egypt as a central state, we know from historical, whether Italy or Germany, Nasser was not Bismarck, and Egypt did not have the resources to really force its vision on the Arab world. Not to mention that the United States took sides in this particular clash. So basically, Yemen became the graveyard really the Egyptian project. Uh, I, we can talk about all of that. Now, what, what you're really seeing, and this is fascinating to me really, as, as a uh, student of the region, now you see the Saudis are really playing a different kind of role. The Saudis are saying, we are now, we are the defenders of the nation state. The nation state as they basically uh, view it and as they, against Shiat Islamism. Shiite Islamism that are, and, you know, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, he gave several interviews about 1979, the importance of 1979 and how the Islamic revolution. That's how they view themselves. They still have not articulated this particular vision. But the Saudis and their allies in the region, they're trying to create a broad coalition to say we want to stop Shiite Islam from penetrating the heart of Sunni. So really, 
in many ways now, whether you're talking about Egypt or whether you're talking about Saudi Arabia and their allies, this is stopping really ideational, this ideational uh, notion, whether Sunni or Shia, whether the varieties of Salafi jihadism uh, and Shia Islamism. It's a major, major shift in the political discourse. And this particular discourse, I mean, the, the, the fights now are playing out uh, in various Arab streets, on various Arab streets in the region. But it's unfolding before our eyes. I mean, this is just, we can't talk about it because it's current affairs. So we, we have nothing solid to, to put our teeth to at this particular moment. We have a question here and then one in the back. Um, going back to the 1950s, you mentioned in passing the tensions within, or the early 60s, the tensions within the leftist movement between ba and Ba'ath, Ba'athism and the socialists that led to the major mistakes by... Um, Could you please speak Nasser. a bit louder so I can... My, I, I, the, the sound system is really not very good. I'll start Excuse. again in a moment, shall yeah. I? Um, so you're leaving without purchasing the books, people? <laughs> we, we know your names now. <laughs> Can you imagine the cowards? <laughs> you mentioned, I think somewhat in passing, the divisions within the Arab nationalist and socialist movement that led to Nasser's uh, adventurism into, in, in 67. Could you say a little bit more about Baathism, which didn't feature... Uh, about about Baathism? and also maybe and some of the political parties that were involved in the period you're talking about. Because it, from, the, from the outside, we hear almost nothing about party politics in the Arab world. And I wonder, is party politics actually of any, of any relevance? And can it be of any relevance in the future? Or are we talking simply about the Muslim Brotherhood, which is much more than a party, and, and royalty... And, um, and the army? Is there a role for political parties? Thank you. And There's a question in the back. Hi. Um, my question is about um, what you mentioned about the Cold War, when the Americans support Mujahideen and they created Mujahideen. And if you look now, the extremism they support by Russia and, uh, and Afghanistan, and include Iranian as well. So how do you, what do you think, like, in future, um, think about the American relationship in the region? Thanks. More questions? One over here, and then one up there. <laughs> yeah. um, thank you very much for the very interesting um, lecture so far. Um, I would be interested in how far um, is actually other countries or other mon Arab monarchies like Morocco, for example, coping with this... Um, this struggle between um, having um, social movements and Islamists, and how do they? How is Morocco or Moroccan's monarchy threatened by this? Thanks. And then up in the balcony. Would you repeat it? I, I didn't hear very well. I'm sorry. You're talking about the Arab Spring uprisings. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thank you so much. Shall we? Let's go with I, I want to. I mean, <clears throat> your question is very important. Uh, it's very important because. The dominant narrative about the Arab world, as you know, about the Middle East in general, is that political parties don't matter. Ideologies don't matter. Paradigms don't matter. It's the cult of personality. It's Azaim al-Awhad, the, the lone leader. It's all about authoritarianism. and Absolutely, this is the reality. 
uh, since the 1950s, the reality of our politics is really the pauperization of politics, of the political participation. of, And that's why, I, I don't know if you remember, I, I really, two major chapters in my book, I revisit the period between the late 19th centuries and the 1940s. I talk about the what we call the grand all parties, Al-Waft, for example. It's a, in Egypt. Al-Waft party was a grand party. If you really look, despite the, I mean, the, colonialism, despite the heavy-handed tactics by Britain, despite, there was really real politics. Of course, limited, semi-liberal politics. There were parties, there were competitions. Uh, notables, not just in Egypt, I mean, in, in, uh, but beyond the political parties, remember, you're also talking about, I mean, here, we, I, one of my colleagues said to me, I mean, give us some context. I'm, I'm talking about the 20th century. I, I hardly said anything about The region was under Ottoman rule for 500 years. From Ottoman rule to direct colonialism. You're talking, we have to take the context, I mean, to come back to the question of the, the I mean, the, the colonial, the, the, the global context. And then the Cold War. The Cold War was an extension of the colonial moment. I know some of my colleagues don't take the Cold War very seriously. You have to. Because the Cold War, the global Cold War, which played on Arab Street and Middle Eastern Street, distorted local politics, provided resources and rents to bloody dictators who did not really basically address the legitimate needs of their people. So when we talk about why political, grand political parties did not really emerge and consolidate, we have to see what happened in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. The only moment... The only moment, really, where there was hope, there was an open, there was a space. You can't talk about the Arab, you have to talk about the Ottoman Empire, and then about how the region itself was created and constructed by, I mean, the leading powers. And that's why this particular lost opportunity, 1920s and 1930s and 1940s, and this is the obstructionism of British colonialism and the monarchy, and the failures of semi-liberal politicians to really deliver on their promises. And yes, the emergence of identity politics, clannish nationalism, populism, and militarism. Again, the military institution was a product of what? The reason why the man on the horseback dominated our politics because you have to look at colonial practices and how resources were invested, where, in what institutions. So, yeah, there are no major political parties after 19, 1950s because you had these bloody dictators, whether you're talking about, I mean, uh, Nasser. And, and the sad and the tragic, the tragedy is that Nasser, because he was such a charismatic leader, because he was seen as the hero of the Arabs, as the lion of the Arabs, he institutionalized and legitimized the role of the man on the horseback. And, yes, it's the cult of personality replaced formal institutions. And to come back to... What Nasser became, I mean, to all of us, the reason why the story matters a great deal, because you have to start with, I mean, Egypt, I mean, as one of the oldest nation states, when you talk about the Arab world. Of course, you look at have Iran, you have Egypt, and you have Turkey. But to come back to, after Nasser, when the Nasser project was basically defeated in 1967, he really died in 1967, not 1970. So you had the various whether you're Saddam Hussein and Hafez al-Assad and Muammar Qaddafi who tried to really carry on the torch. This is kind of, they really wanted to. Uh, so Iraq became the eastern gate of the Arab world. 
Hafez al-Assad wanted to also fill the shoes of Kamal Abdel Nasser and Muammar Qaddafi. You know the story. Uh, sadly, for a variety of reasons, they, they, they are monstrous miscalculations and their wars and their authoritarianism and sectarianism and the story is, is very clear now. So this is, but if you want to talk about really why political parties don't exist, we have to look at, look at, I mean, the context itself, the global context, and also what happened. And to me, really, I, I really urge you, in particular students, when you hear the question is, instead of buying the notion of, you know, what political scientists narrow the debate, you have to really look at the spirit of 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s which basically sowed the seeds of identity politics and clannish nationalism and populism and underground politics paved the way for uh, these movements, a liberal, anti-democratic uh, movement. You see, you, see, you see why this is very important. So now, I mean, Tunisia, to come back to Tunisia, Tunisia is, is really a very important case. If Tunisia, the transition goes through the transition, uh, because I think if you look at Iraq and Syria and Libya and Yemen, and sadly Egypt, now Egypt is highly uh, polarized. I mean, there's a violent clash between the Egyptian authorities and the Islamists. Uh, so really, because the dust is going to take a decade for the dust to settle on the battlefields in the various countries, with the exception. So Tunisia might provide really a light at the end of the tunnel. In Morocco, I mean, that's a different case. Morocco, even in terms of the Arab Spring uprisings, people looked at Morocco because a different kind of legitimacy, uh, the role of the king, and, you know, there was a big debate about diffusion. Will the Arab Spring uprising ever reach or never reach Morocco? And I think the king in Morocco has been able to co-opt the various, including Islamist forces, so that you don't have a historical violent clash in Morocco in the same way you have it in Egypt or even in Iraq. Uh, so it, it, the Islamists actually are part of the ruling establishment in Morocco, uh, unlike uh, you know Libya and other places. So again, this is Morocco really is. But your question is very important because there is really quite. We have to look at the variety and diversity of political and social types in the region. So my argument don't really apply everywhere, but that's important in terms of falsification and also looking at the landscape, the complexity of the landscape. So there is no simple explanation that applies to everywhere because Tunisia shows. Uh, sadly, Iran seems to be really more of Egyptian type. I mean, Iran is, is traveling a similar journey to its Arab neighbors, uh, in particular in the past 30 years or so. Do we have any questions, or we've done one more, a few more questions? There's one question in the middle, and then we should probably wind things up. All right. Back. From your lecture today, basically, I've understood that Egypt, from your lecture today, you've basically said Egypt is the qalb of all huh? the Arab nations, that Egypt is the heart. So, reflecting on Egypt's past and going forward now, where do you see Egypt going? I don't know. I really don't know where Egypt is going. And I, I, I think... Uh, To me, without Egypt, you have a huge vacuum, huge, huge vacuum, uh, because there is unity to the Egyptian state. I mean, 
in terms of politics, in terms of social dynamics, in terms of the elite, in terms of uh, Egypt is at war now. Uh, in fact, Egypt is going back as opposed to really going forward. Uh, and this is the situation in Egypt is also, we don't have the time to talk about the social dynamics in Egypt. Uh, I mean, to give you an idea, poverty in Egypt now is more than 43% of Egyptians live either in poverty or below the poverty line. Uh, the question of water is existential in Egypt now. I mean, uh, unemployment is between 20 and 30%, uh, on and on in terms of Egypt needs 10 million jobs in the next 10 years, 15 millions actually. Uh, so Egyptians hoped that President Assisi will be able to deliver the social goods, will be able to, because the idea was, I mean, the Muslim brothers made some terrible, horrible mistakes. Uh, Mursi was sadly a mediocrity, no vision, no program, no whatsoever. He did not really take into account of the tensions and contentious politics in the region. Uh, even though Mursi did not really control the state, he did not really have any kind of... But, I mean, I, I think many Egyptians, he did not really listen to what was happening in Egypt itself. So the Egyptians feared because there was a critical mass of people who basically believed that the Muslim brothers, al-Ikhwan, were trying to hijack the state. Uh, but at the end of the day, President Assisi has been re-elected for his second term. He has to deliver the goods. Egypt, if you go and travel to Egypt and see the situation, is extremely dismal, extremely socially, I'm talking, socially and economically. Not to mention, uh, you have thousands of political prisoners. Uh, the situation is as bad as it used to be under Mubarak, the last years of Mubarak terms of crackdown against liberties and against, not just the Islamists, against critical liberal voices. And to me, it seems, you know, we teach our students, uh, wherever Egypt goes, the region follows. In the 1920s, when semi-liberal politics was basically very vibrant in Egypt, the entire region was walking, traveling into that particular and then in the 1950s and 60s, when Egypt went Arab nationalist, the entire region went Arab nationalist. And then Islamist, when Egypt went Islamist in the 1970s and 80s, I mean, remember, the, the, the brain behind the Islamist movement is Egyptian. It was not Osama bin Laden who, it was Ayman Zawahiri and the people around. So the region went Islamist because Egypt really, in a way, a driver in the region for it because of its cultural weight, because of... So that's why, in many ways, I mean, the Arab state system now is really bunk, is, is really... And that's why, if you want to know where the Arab world is, the non-Arab states really are dominant in the region. The two dominant powers in the region are basically Iran and Turkey. Whether you're talking about Syria, whether you're talking about other places, Egypt is trying to put its house in order. It's going to take Egypt 10 years to be able, I hope, I hope only 10 years to be able to really put its house in order and re-emerge out of the rubble of years, of decades of massive economic mismanagement and political authoritarianism. Sorry about this, Pat. That's, that's, that's the footnote. Um, 
Uh, many of you may still have uh, serious questions for Fawaz, and uh, he's given us a great deal of time and effort and eloquent responses, but I would advise you to read the book if you really want a coherent, comprehensive answer to many of your questions uh, uh, as it represents the, the latest uh, uh, sort of uh, iteration of his thinking uh, on the Middle East, its history, its politics, and, yes, its future. Um, so please join me in thanking Fawaz and then interested in uh, purchasing the book. He'll remain here to sign copies um, uh, if you want to come up to stage and uh, get a signed copy and uh, speak with him. Uh, you're very welcome to do so.